Hey folks, one quick thing before we dive into this week's episode. For anyone that's going to RailsConf, I want to let you know that a number of us from ThoughtBot will be there as well. John Schumann will be giving a talk about bringing sprinkles of functional programming to your Ruby and Rails applications. Joelle Kenneville and Rachel Matthew will be together presenting a mock ThoughtBot technical interview live on stage. And I will be giving a workshop on mastering Git. In addition, we'll be recording a bunch of live bike sheds, and we're even hoping to pull together a meetup one of the nights. So keep an eye on any of the Twitter feeds if you're interested, and be sure to say hi. I always find the counting to 10. Uh, for some reason, that's the most awkward part of the entire recording for me. Which I get really <laughs> nervous. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by two special guests from Mozilla, Lynn Clark and Till Schneiderite. Lynn and Till, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it is a, a real pleasure. So today I asked you both on to chat about the topic of WebAssembly or WASM, as we'll probably refer to it throughout the episode. But before we dig too much into that, I would love to know a little bit more about each of you and your respective roles at Mozilla and how that fits into the, the story of WebAssembly and uh, sort of where you're coming from. So Lynn, why don't we start with you? It's a little bit of your background. I always introduce myself by saying I make code cartoons. That's what a lot of people know me from. But I'm also a principal research engineer on the advanced development team at Mozilla and uh, particularly focusing on working with the teams that are doing WebAssembly and Rust. Perfect. Yes. And the code cartoons are fantastic. We will, of course, include links to uh, many of them in the show notes. But yeah. And Till, how about you? I'm a manager in the advanced development department in Mozilla's emerging technologies department. And my team is working on the Rust language compiler and ecosystem and on WebAssembly tooling and runtimes. Besides that, I also do standardization work. I'm delegate to the TC39 JavaScript standardization committee and the WebAssembly community group in the W3C. I'm mainly focused there on the integration between JavaScript and WebAssembly. Between the two of you, that's quite the cross-section of all things WebAssembly and <laughs> uh, the web. So fantastic. So we've touched on it. We've hinted at the topic, but our, our topic today is going to be WebAssembly. And I was hoping that you could give a quick foundational this is sort of what WebAssembly is. And we're going to dig into a lot of the, the sort of leaf nodes of that. But what's the core story here? What is WebAssembly? For sure, yeah, we could talk about that. So WebAssembly is a way of running programming languages that aren't JavaScript in the browser. At least that's how it started. Basically, people wanted to be able to take code that was written in C and C++ and Rust and run it in the browser. Now it's actually coming outside of the browser. So it's not as closely tied to the browser as people think that it would be. But that was its in the early days what a lot of people looked to it for. Right. So its origin story is as a browser engine runtime. Runtime? Is that the correct? Well, it actually both? runs inside of the runtime, the JavaScript runtime. So both WebAssembly and JavaScript now run in the same engine in the browser. When I think about it, and maybe I have an incorrect mental model, I liken it more closely to JVM or to what I would think of as um, V8, which I think of as runtimes. But now you're sort of blowing my mind that it's a level within a level. So 
Uh, can you tease that apart just a little bit more for, for me? For sure. Or maybe my preconceptions are just totally wrong and the audience will understand all of this. But. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned V8. V8 actually runs WebAssembly inside of it, just like it runs JavaScript. So WebAssembly is actually what's called a compiler target. You take a language like Rust and you compile it to WebAssembly. And so that's where the assembly and the name WebAssembly comes from. It's kind of like the assembly that runs on a machine, a very, very low-level instruction set. But when you're compiling something to WebAssembly, you don't actually know what machine architecture you're targeting. So you don't know if you're what instructions that you can use. And so that's why we have WebAssembly, because it's actually just slightly more abstract version of assembly. And then the runtime, so something like V8, can go and make the little hop from the WebAssembly instructions into the instructions in the assembly language for that target machine. Gotcha. That makes sense. So am I correct then in understanding that it would be roughly equivalent to JVM bytecode? That's what the WebAssembly... Is it a bytecode? Is that a correct phrasing? Yeah, you phrasing? can think of it that way. Okay. I'm not even sure that that's useful because I don't really know what that means, but I've heard these words. So <laughs> I'm sort of just trying to draw the mental model of where does it fit in which stack or stacks. Although interestingly, you were hinting at the fact that it started with let's bring apps into the browser, but now it's getting a, a broader summary. Uh, but actually, before we move on to that, one of the things that I've heard, and I don't know if this is still true, but there's some complexity around interacting with the DOM and interacting with native JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And so, Till, this feels like a, a perfect question for you. Is the story evolving there? Have we reached a point where things can just, from WebAssembly, interact with the DOM, or are we still trying to figure that story out? We are not quite there yet, but... The story is well on its way in, in two different ways, actually. There's the standardization effort that'll directly enable this. And for the longest time, that was known as WebAssembly host bindings, but it has recently been renamed or is, I guess, sort of in the process of being renamed to WebAssembly web IDL bindings. And that is because all the DOM APIs are standardized in a way where the interface to them is specified in something called WebIDL, Web Interface Definition Language. And the way the direct DOM access for WebAssembly will be done is by automatically generating the functions that WebAssembly can directly import and consume from these WebIDL definitions. And that'll enable engines to generate them very efficiently without engine implementers having to do manual things for each and every one of these uh, functions and also do it with high fidelity types which enables few type checks and high performance so calling these should actually be faster in a number of cases than uh, calling the same functions from javascript that's a really good development on the standardization side but Until that is available in all browsers, that'll take some time. And the web ecosystem's answer to things sort of slowly becoming available for production use on are polyfills. And there isn't a direct polyfill for these web LDL bindings, but you can almost see what we are doing with the Rust to WebAssembly toolchain as containing a polyfill for these host bindings. So we have this tool called WASM BindGen, WebAssembly Bindings Generator, that allows you to import functions. And we actually generate the signatures for these functions based on the WebRDL definitions that we are also using in Firefox. And that way, we generate efficiently usable Rust interfaces for all these functions. 
And we also generate the JavaScript code that actually makes them available. So we have small JavaScript functions for each and every one of these that essentially forward to the actual DOM function. Got it. So to make sure I understood that, the current story, at least in the world of Rust compiling down to WebAssembly, is the Rust toolchain is producing a couple of extra artifacts that are coming along, some of which are those interface definition language, and then some of those are a little bit of JavaScript to glue things together. Exactly. So right now, we're, you have to go through a JavaScript layer, but that toolchain is generating it for you. And eventually... The story will be, you don't need any JavaScript. We can go directly through because we figured out a, a more conversant way to make that connection from WebAssembly directly to the DOM. Yeah, exactly. That's really a bit like tools like Babel allow you to use more modern JavaScript features, but actually right. for deployment to current browsers or older browsers, it gets converted to older features of the web platform. In this case, JavaScript providing the glue. I like the way you were circling around the concept of the JavaScript community when faced with slowness and implementation will find a way <laughs> somehow. Excellent. So I guess the story there is at least from the Rust side, I can build web applications in WebAssembly that will interact with the DOM and be able to do all of the things that I might in any sort of dynamic JavaScript application, but I'll have the speed and download side and size and all of those other benefits that come along with WebAssembly. And eventually that story will continue getting better and likely span to other languages beyond just the Rust tool chain that you're describing. Exactly. That sounds fun. So to circle back, I did hint at the idea of faster mm -hmm. and smaller. Can we dig into that just a little bit? Because I think there is a really interesting story here. So can you provide a little more detail around that? So you mean how WebAssembly can be faster than JavaScript in some cases? Right. Yeah. So the general set of benefits that like we're seeing, it's a different compilation target, but also from that we get speed and probably a whole host of benefits that I'm going to short change if I try and list it. So yeah. what are the benefits in general? So yes, WebAssembly can be faster. And I think it's important to note that it's not that it's always faster. So it's important to look at your use case and to actually profile. But WebAssembly can be faster than JavaScript because for one thing, it already has the type information in WebAssembly. I think a lot of people don't realize that the way that JavaScript engines have gotten fast is through this thing called the JIT. And what the JIT does is as your code's running, because JavaScript doesn't have types, you know, you don't know whether or not something's a string or a number or what's happening in the code at the start. The way that the JIT figures this out is by watching the code run for a while. Based on what it's seeing, it makes some educated guesses about whether or not this value is going to be a number all the way into the future, or, you know, this object's going to always have these properties. But sometimes it makes the wrong guess. And so, you know, based on that informational compile code, that is really optimized for that particular, like if it's doing integer addition, optimized for integer addition. But when it makes the wrong guess and a different kind of value comes in for that variable, has to throw out that optimized code and, and re-optimize. And so there's a lot of stuff going on in a JavaScript engine that people don't realize. Because the types are already baked into WebAssembly, you don't need to go through all of, have all of that overhead. Also, it's uh, faster to decode WebAssembly than it is to parse JavaScript. So you have some speed up there. There are a number of different places throughout the pipeline where WebAssembly's design just makes it easier for the engine to run it quickly. Right, that definitely uh, makes sense. One of the things that I've seen is the idea of large applications like a Photoshop or something like that being transpiled, cross-compiled, again, phrasing, I don't know which the <laughs> nomenclature is, but whichever is the relevant one into WebAssembly. And then that being able to run in the browser. And so is that an area where WebAssembly really shines in taking these 
much larger and often computationally intensive applications and allowing them to run in the browser. Is that one of the stories that we have here? That is one of the stories. And it is really the first that WebAssembly was developed to support. So the history here is all of this essentially started with the mscripten toolchain, which compiled existing C or C++ code to JavaScript. And then the ASM.js subset of JavaScript was defined with the insight that mscripten and similar tools really targeted a very specific subset of JavaScript that is highly optimizable if you know beforehand that that is really what you're targeting. And then based on that, WebAssembly was developed to raise the performance even higher. And so mscript continued being the dominant tool which was used to compile these existing native applications to the web. So Adobe Lightroom is an example of an application where at least sort of the core, not the user interface, but the core of all the image processing stuff, that that was all compiled to the web using mscript and now works under a, a web interface. Same for AutoCAD where they took this, what, 30-plus-year-old code base and compiled it all to the web, and it works quite well. But by now, there are a few more storylines that are really interesting. One I really like is uh, Figma. How do you describe it? User interface prototyping? Yes, yeah. yes, that's, uh, that sounds great. They are using WebAssembly not so much to support an existing code base because they started from scratch, but they had all these domain experts coming from a background where uh, they had long experience in building user interfaces and user interface editors in C and C++. And instead of having all these people learn JavaScript and relearn all the things in this new language, they said, well, we'll continue using C++ for these parts and then have front-end people do a JavaScript front-end for this backend. So here it's really about preserving and making best use of domain experts. So that's really an, another a second emerging storyline. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I hadn't heard about that and I didn't realize that Figma had that story behind it. So that's the live Figma that's out there right yeah. now is running with WebAssembly for a good portion of the user interface. And they use, this has been going on for quite some time. They used ASM.js hmm. before WebAssembly was a thing. So they, they decided on this course of action. I don't know if at that point WebAssembly had even been announced when they started on this path. Right, on the bleeding edge. So to try and jump out into the future, is a potential endpoint and or a goal that we will not write JavaScript in the future? That JavaScript is just going to go away and that we will be using WebAssembly entirely, targeting from any number of languages, but that JavaScript, as we've known and used it for many years, is no longer a thing that we do. Well, that's definitely not a goal. And I'm not sure that it's actually even in the cards without it being a goal, because JavaScript is good at a number of things. You know, for most of your code base, JavaScript actually just is fine. Your code isn't that hot. Uh, you don't have the same functions being run a lot. And it's actually really quick and easy to prototype things and to get going with JavaScript. So I think that for the most part, the JavaScript ecosystem is going to continue. But there are certain use cases, certain parts of your code where 
it really makes sense to use something that's higher performance, you know, that's more predictable performance. I think that's where we're going to see WebAssembly on the web being used until you may have some more thoughts on this. The way I like to think about it is JavaScript is hard to beat at those things that it is good at. And we see that in it being used on the server side with Node.js in places where people really would not need to use it. There are no hard constraints forcing them to use JavaScript. And they do it because they actually like the language. But beyond those areas where it's really good and, and again, hard to beat, it's also being pressed into service for things where it's really just not the right language, where you have to be a wizard to optimize things in a way to make it make them workable if all you have is JavaScript. And with WebAssembly, we are enabling people to use the right language for the job instead of having to press this one language into service for all the jobs. It is interesting the way that you're describing that is it sounds almost as if WebAssembly is now giving us sort of a a chance to reset and make the considered decision of what language to use, whereas historically JavaScript was the only game in town. And then because of, I think, its comfort and usability and the ease of getting things up and running and then the familiarity that many people had, it's now spread to the server and it's being used in so many different places. But now with WebAssembly, we can potentially take a step back and say, like, if you want to use Rust, that's an option. I'm guessing there are many others. I, I know of TypeScript being compiled to it, but I'm wondering... Do you have to be in a strongly typed language to compile into WebAssembly? Is that a requirement? Or like, could JavaScript be compiled into WebAssembly? I'm guessing not, based on what you were saying about the type information and some of how it works. But yeah, I guess, what are the options and what's the long game on that as well? The big advantages you get in WebAssembly are that you can do a lot of the optimization work ahead of time before deploying your code to the user. And that you can only do if you have strong type information and can rely on toolchains that make use of that, like the LLVM compiler toolchain. For JavaScript, the way I like to think about it is if it were possible to compile it to WebAssembly and do the optimizations without the JIT compiler, if there were techniques for doing this, we would be using those techniques in JavaScript engines. And there's no way for JavaScript to run nearly as performant in WebAssembly as it can be in native engines. You also did ask about the the long game. And there is a conceivable future where WebAssembly engines gain support for JIT compiled code and where you could implement a performant JavaScript engine in WebAssembly and then run JavaScript in in that engine that itself is implemented in WebAssembly. And for other languages that aren't as highly optimized as JavaScript, we are already seeing that. Python, you can run Python code in the Python interpreter compiled to WebAssembly right now. There's a project called Pyodide that another team at Mozilla has built that allows you to run all the scientific computing Python that's out there in the browser and instead of having to set it up on a server. That is a heck of an adventure. (laughs) I think what you're saying of like, we have large existing code bases, we have skill sets and we have teams and anything that we're doing, particularly in the world of the web needs to work in concert with that. Like there's probably not going to be a day anytime soon where JavaScript is just not around just due to how much is here now. 
Similarly, like Python, with all of the scientific tools that are built into it, each language has those things that is really mastered. But it is interesting seeing WebAssembly come on as a new way to think about, a new lens, I guess, to, to look at some of these through. We've talked a bunch about WebAssembly in the browser, which feel free to loop me back if I'm missing anything big from that story. But I think there's a new addition to the conversation, which a pretty recent one, which is WASI, if I'm saying that correctly, the WebAssembly system interface. Yeah, yeah, you pronounced it perfectly. Good job. Excellent. That's my goal on the podcast, (laughs) primarily. But can you folks describe what WASI is and what it means and and how it starts to add more to this whole story? Sure. So... When I was first talking about WebAssembly, I wrote some code cartoons about WebAssembly about two years ago. I talked about how it was an assembly language for a conceptual machine, not for an actual physical machine. And in the same way, you know, we have all of these different operating systems. When you're compiling your code, you usually have to target a particular operating system. You have to tell the compiler which operating system you're you're going to be targeting. But like I said before, with WebAssembly, you just don't know what you're going to be targeting. You're going to be sending this WebAssembly file to all different kinds of machines. So you can't tell it what operating system you're targeting. So in the same way that we needed an assembly language for a conceptual machine, we also need a system interface for a conceptual operating system. You know, we can't target any specific operating system. We need to have this conceptual operating system that can then the runtime, the WebAssembly runtime can go from this conceptual system interface to the actual system interface for whatever machine the code's running on. And so this would provide or does provide, I'm not sure which state of real it is in, but this is things like being able to open a socket or read from a file or write to a file. It's that level of system call things, Exactly, yes. And we do actually already have a proposal for how this should work, and it's already been implemented. We already have support for it in Rust. There's a PR up now for Go, which happened a day after we announced the uh, WASI. And we also have a sysroot that adds support that basically ellipses the implementation of it so that you can use it in C as well. And so with C, then that's going to get you onto a lot of different platforms. Which platforms can support this at the current moment? And I might not be using the word platform, right? Like, can I run this on my Mac OS machine or do I need a Linux box or is it even a smaller subset of things? So we have three different existing implementations of WASI. So three different WebAssembly runtimes implementing what we currently have for WASI. That is our own WASM-time runtime, which works on Linux and macOS as of now, Windows support coming. And then we have a polyfill that works in the browser. Where Right now, if you go to wasi.dev slash polyfill, there is an upload button and you could upload any arbitrary WASM file there and have it execute there as long as it uses the WASI interfaces we have defined so far. And then finally, the Fastly CDN, the company behind that, they have their own runtime called Lucid, which is optimized for running on their CDNs. But on a Linux box, you can run it as a local runtime. It sounds like then I could actually build applications that would work now on my computer and actually run. So I could build like a web server targeting WebAssembly and run that on my local machine. That is now plausible based on the technologies that exist. Maybe not a great idea immediately, but plausible. Mm -hmm. As of today, we are not quite at the point where you can really build a web server because well, this, this won't go live for like two um. weeks, so how about two weeks? <laughs> so we really only just started with the standardization effort. And yes, 
this has been growing for a while before the announcement, but it is also a big effort. So two caveats. One is not all the interfaces that you would expect and need are already there. And I'm not entirely sure what the status for sockets is exactly. This is ongoing work. Additionally, none of the interfaces we have should be considered stable at this point. We really wanted to have a proposal out there that can serve as the foundation to collaborate with as many different interested parties as possible. And so yesterday during the W3C WebAssembly community group call, which happens every two weeks on Tuesday, we asked for a subgroup of the committee to be chartered, focused solely on standardizing WASI and got that approved with 22 strong yes, five yes, and no neutral or against votes. In that subgroup, we'll be working with other companies on defining what these interfaces really should look like. And over time, they'll evolve to some degree because there will be experts for certain areas coming in saying, this part you're working on here, that's not really optimal and bring in their their domain knowledge really. And so we'll end up with much better interfaces than we have right now, or I don't know about much, but at least slightly better interfaces probably for, for almost everything. That definitely makes sense. And I, I fully recognize and respect the measured answers that you're giving, but in an attempt to shift the conversation into more, I don't know, excited and futuristic versions, there was a tweet that I saw from someone related to the Docker project saying, and I, I may be misattributing or I may not understand exactly the conversation, but something to the effect of if Wazzy had been around, I would not have made Docker. That's the kind of excitement that I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get at. And I, again, I respect and think it's very much the right tone that you're taking. But now that I've said that, <laughs> can you contextualize that a little bit for us and maybe add some calming elements to that story? But what does that mean? And what's your interpretation of that statement? Sure. So that was Solomon Hikes, uh, one of the co-founders of Docker. And he did say if WASM and WASI had been around in 2008, we wouldn't have needed to make Docker. And I think that part of what he was getting at there is something that we haven't yet mentioned, which is the security model that we're bringing mm. to WASI. So WebAssembly itself already has a certain security model. Basically, WebAssembly code can't do anything to your system unless you pass in a function to the WebAssembly module that can then act on the system. So WebAssembly itself is perfectly sandboxed. So, you know, it just can't reach out and do things. So we are making sure that as part of this, that we're continuing to uphold that principle of security with WASI. We're not just upholding it, though. We're also extending it. We're making WASI have even finer grain security. And what we're doing is bringing um, capability-based concepts into the design of it. And what a capability is, is basically, if the code needs to access a file, a file descriptor for that file has to be passed into the code. The code can't just call open with a particular string and ask the operating system, does the user running this code have access to this? Instead, the runtime actually says, here's exactly the file that you, the code, can use. And you're not going to be asking the operating system for some random string. You can use the file that is described by this descriptor. Yeah, that adds interestingly to the story. And so adding it all up, I think 
Wasm and Wazzy have a story of performance security, which I was less aware of, but that's very interesting to then color the whole conversation and then portability Mm -hmm. and being able to target that runtime across a number of different platforms and providing that same abstraction level. And when you mix all of that up, it sounds to me like I might just be writing code in the future that only targets Wasm and Wazzy. I could see that being an outcome. The specific language that I'm writing in is a question. I don't know. We'll see what that ends up being. But that idea of now having one consistent target. Are you familiar with the, I'm going to say it's the birth and death of JavaScript, (laughs) a talk by Gary Bernhardt? Yeah, of course. I imagine that gets brought up a lot in the conversations (laughs) because. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, I had seen that actually even before I was at Mozilla, I, I had seen the video of that talk. But everybody, since we tweeted this last week, everybody has been basically mm-hmm. <laughs> retweeting it with a, a tag to Gary Bernhardt. So sorry, Gary, for filling up your mentions. I mean, I think when he gave the talk, it was partly in humor, but also partly serious mm-hmm. that this is a very reasonable direction that we can go. And that if we can simplify the number of different runtimes that we need to target down to one, there's potentially strong, strong benefits that can come from that. And having the added story of a security first approach and the performance and all of like, this is a great mm-hmm. story. I want to live in this this world. <laughs> but again, I appreciate the careful and purposeful effort of standardization committees and gradual rollout and backwards compatibility and all of the complexity of the web is just mind blowing. And trying to build into that world and add new things while still being respectful of what exists and not breaking the existing web is it's a hard challenge. You folks at Mozilla are doing some good work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So what are some of the existing caveats? I think some of the things that come to mind are garbage collection and exception handling. I think those still have complicated stories, particularly for folks coming from JavaScript. But is there anything else and or could you elaborate on those two, if I'm correctly understanding that they are complications at this point? Lynn actually wrote a post last fall about the, the, the post MVP future of WebAssembly published on the hex.mozilla.org blog that fleshes out some of the use cases that WebAssembly doesn't yet cover perfectly, at least, and what the features are that are required to really cover them well. And you're right that exception handling and garbage collection are two of the big ticket items there. And exception handling is important for some languages, like a lot of C++ code uses exceptions. Actually, not all C++ code of the big browser engines. I think Blink doesn't use exceptions. Uh, the Gecko engine in Firefox doesn't use exceptions either because even though they are called zero overhead exceptions, they do overall in the system introduce some overhead that is for this use case just not acceptable. But there's a lot of code out there that uses exceptions. And that is currently, it can be compiled to WebAssembly using mscripten but I would advise against it. It's, it's a big pile of hacks that enables that. And I wouldn't consider code using exception handling in C++ to be production quality when compared to WebAssembly today. There's a proposal in the works to bring more generalized concept of exception handling to WebAssembly. So that'll cover that part. And for garbage collection, we are working on a proposal for enabling WebAssembly content to use the host's garbage collector. So in browsers, that means the garbage collector of the JavaScript engine. And that part is important. So right now, you can use garbage collection in WebAssembly. You can compile Go to WebAssembly right now. And that means the code brings its own garbage collector running in WebAssembly with it. And that works. But what it doesn't allow you is 
good interaction with the JavaScript host on the outside. So interacting with JavaScript code and with the DOM while not having to constantly convert all the data you're talking about back and forth between the two systems, that requires you really to have tight integration between the two worlds and be able to talk about the same objects, essentially. And so this garbage collection support will enable talking about at least a subset of JavaScript objects with high performance also on the WebAssembly side. And one final note, the subset of JavaScript objects is typed objects, which don't so far exist. So there are two proposals in the work. One, the garbage collection proposal for WebAssembly and typed objects proposal, which I'm championing in TC39 for bringing strongly typed objects to JavaScript that you can by and large treat as if they were normal objects, but they have a fixed memory layout and they have these uh, slots in their memory that can only take objects or values of the right type. And if you try to assign to them with the wrong type, they throw. And that allows the WebAssembly side to operate on that same data very efficiently because it knows that if I access this slot in, in that object, it can only contain things with the right memory layout. I think that all makes sense. And if I'm understanding those different pieces, that's part of the reason that Rust has such a strong story in the WebAssembly world is that it's manual memory management and, frankly, the, the excellent story that it has around that. Those things just blend well into the world of WebAssembly, whereas other languages might be a bit more of a force fit. Like you're saying, Go, you can do it, but you're compiling Go into WebAssembly and then running your program on top of that, whereas with Rust code, you're able to do a more direct translation into WebAssembly. Is that correct? That is correct. And we also can produce much smaller modules because Rust can compile to something that uses a very small amounts of runtime, similar to what C++ can also do. It is a language that, let's say, is more confidence-inducing for people who might not be systems programmers by trade to begin with. They might be JavaScript developers, and now they want to pick up another language. With Rust, Rust isn't easier to learn than C++, but it has the very nice property that if it compiles, then the chances are that it actually works the way you expect. Whereas just being able to compile a C++ application, that doesn't mean anything about how well it actually does the thing you expect it to or whether it might crash pretty much immediately. I really wonder how many folks in the Bike Shed audience are programming C++ on a daily basis. I have no idea. I'm intrigued. If you're listening and you program C++, the majority of your working week, I want to know. <laughs> well, excellent. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Any parting words? It sounds like this is something to be very excited about and even more excited in the future. There's great things currently and big things coming down the road. But anything else for us to keep an eye out on or any other parting summaries that you want to provide? So I, I provided these measured words about the current state of WASI. I don't want to say that I am incredibly excited about the future potential that we are starting to enable with this work. Yeah, I would also echo that. I think that we're being measured because we see that there's work ahead of us, but that doesn't mean that we aren't excited about the future because 
just looking at the responses that people have had to the WASI announcement, it's clear that there are a lot of people that are also very excited about this and very eager to jump in and help make this future a reality. So I think it's not an if, but a when. Awesome. I think the measured approach in a position such as yours where you're on the leading edge of a technology that potentially has such broad ramifications totally makes sense to have a, a measured and purposeful thing. But it's also great to hear the excitement and the, the passion that you both have for this work that's going on. Thank you both so much for joining us. If folks wanted to uh, find more of your work on the internet, keep up with what you're up to with Wazzy and Wasm and, and code cartoons and all the different things, where would be the best spots? Well, for me, I am most active on Twitter. So my handle is Lynn Clark, L-I-N-C-L-A-R-K. The Hacks blog is where I put all of the code cartoons. So hacks.mozilla.org. And for me, Twitter is also the right place to find me. And maybe you can include a link to my Twitter handle because it's T. Schneider, right? And maybe spelling that out doesn't make sense here. <laughs> I will absolutely include those and many more links. There's also, I think, a video uh, associated with the blog post that you mentioned from a recent meetup. So we can capture all of that, package it up together, and I will share all of those links. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.